0: Welcome to EvaluLand, a podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell-Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. Welcome back to another episode of EvaluLand. This episode going to be a little different than the past. Although, I don't know if I can really say that, given that I'm not sure we've even hit a normal yet. This is only episode six, so I'm still trying things out, seeing how it feels, trying things that... Honestly, this is actually the what I had originally planned for the podcast. So, um, I hope you like it, but if you have any feedback about this episode or any past episodes, I'd really love to hear it. You can email me at podcast at You can also find the website at evalueland.fireside.fm. And I also just want to let you know that there might be a hiatus this fall with the release of episodes. I have one more uh, guest lined up and we're recording later this week. Um, But beyond that, I don't know how much I'll be able to devote for this, um, at least at the start of my semester. As you know, uh, a lot of universities and schools are moving to um, online teaching. And so that kind of means that I'm prepping classes newly um, in this new modality that we are working in. So I'm going to be recording a lot of videos and you know lectures and discussions dur- for my classes. And I've got four unique classes to teach this semester. So um, I just I might have a hiatus. I might not. We'll see. I'm giving myself the grace to have the hiatus if I need it and record if I need it. So we'll see what happens, but just let you know if you don't see an episode in about four weeks time, that's why. So as I mentioned, this is one of the original ideas I had for the podcast. I really wanted to start sharing research on evaluation more. I'm a co-program chair for the Research on Evaluation TIG for the American Evaluation Association, and this is just something that's really near and dear to me, and what I'm really interested in, I really want to share widely what research on evaluation is and get people more involved with it to you know, share things more widely, publish things in journals, share in conferences, and recognize that a lot of the work people are doing, at least I would consider research on evaluation. However, I do want to go into that just for a bit. Um, Through the research on evaluation TIG, we put together like a working group. We just meet once a month to talk about ROE topics and things of issue for us. Um, So things like how do we fund ROE and all this stuff. And one of the first things we decided to do was try to come up with like our working definition of what research on evaluation is. And so we had a conversation about the definitions that exist and there's not too many, which is helpful. Um, So we've got definitions by Karen et al, 2015, Brandon, 2015, and then Leslie Piero provided us her working definition as well. And this led us to come up with this kind of broad, I, I don't want to say this is our definition and this is the definition, but this is kind of what we came up with, that research on evaluation is any purposeful, systematic, empirical inquiry Intended to create a stronger evidence base and infrastructure for the applied practice of evaluation. And one of the words I've been thinking a lot lately is empirical. And I've been thinking a lot about it because I've, in the back of my head, I've thought a lot of people, more people are doing research on evaluation than think they're doing research on evaluation, right? There's a lot of people who are doing it, but they don't think they're doing it. Or at least that's my thought. However, I think the definition that we've all kind of focused on, which all of the definitions provided, seem to focus on this empirical aspect. I need to go back to Leslie Firo's definition. I'm not entirely sure of that one. Let's see. Leslie Firo's definition was a research investigation that generates findings with the intended purpose of creating a stronger evidence base and an infrastructure for the applied practice of evaluation. So you can see where we got what we took from her definition, but the other three. Definitions from Brandon and Corinne at all focus on this systematic inquiry and empirical inquiry aspect, and we pulled that into our definition. But I'm starting to feel like I we shouldn't have. And I say that because a lot of the stuff that's going to be on this episode, I don't think most people would consider it empirical, or at least I wouldn't call it empirical. Right? There's no like systematic nature to it. Um, people are sharing really good, thoughtful literature reviews and praxis articles and other types of articles that I I think a lot of people would just wouldn't call empirical. And I don't, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, right? But I think that's the issue we have with research on evaluation and the definition and then the conceptualization from people who are outside of, for instance, our TIG and doing the quote-unquote empirical research on evaluation. So I just bring that up to say that a lot of the stuff that's going to be shared here is, you know, non-empirical research, right? Um, And I think there's a, a huge value to that type of research. And just in the back of my head, I'm kind of rethinking what the definition of research on evaluation is as a result. But another point before I launch into some of the articles that I wanted to cover was that there's just a lot to cover. So if your article wasn't shared, um, I'm sorry. I read a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I actually I have a I have a reading process, and I read a lot of articles related to evaluation and so on. And there's just there was way too much um, to cover in this episode. And I really enjoy like nearly everything that comes across my plate um, in terms of you know evaluation resources and articles and empirical research and everything, um, but. I hope you do enjoy what I did cover. I would like to do more episodes like this in the future. So if this is of interest and you find use of this, you know, just let me know. I'd love to hear that. Um, if you have any ideas of how to improve these types of research roundups, um, my thought is to do this maybe quarterly, just because there is a lot of stuff that does come out, um, both through the um, scholarly journals, but as well as a um, there's just always a lot coming out. So I really want to highlight that type of stuff. And if you ever publish something and you want to share it more widely, we can have more episodes where it's, you know, we talk with researchers on their research or with writers on their articles and so on. So I'd like this podcast to be something that both I and all of you listeners get something out of. So let me know what you like or don't like, and we can work together to make this a podcast that we all enjoy. So the first set of articles I'd like to cover is the are the two special issues on values in the Evaluation Journal of Australasia. Um, I, these are and forgive me if I've missed some people that are really involved with this, but it sounds like it's Amy Gullickson, Karen Hassel, Kelly Hannum, um, and Rorda. I, I think I might pro- pronouncing that wrong. I apologize. R O O R D A and this, these two special issues do a lot. And I'm really grateful for these two special issues. And I think, I think the first thing it does really well is, you know, really get us to think more critically about what our values what values are inherent in evaluation practice and whose values and how do we use and incorporate values into our practice. So there's a lot going on here. Um, I'm going to highlight a couple things that I thought were really interesting with this these two special issues. Um, first, I really enjoyed the editorial in the first issue by the the five four people I just mentioned, Gullickson, Hassel, Hanum, and Rurda, um, because they really start thinking like Bringing up those questions that I just said, right? Um, You know, obviously values are inherent in evaluation, right? We we always say that, but to what extent people are really engaging with their values um, and engaging those values within their evaluation um, perhaps might vary, right? And so they think it might vary individually. Like some people will just be more prone to do that than others, also by their evaluation approach and for people who are a bit reluctant to incorporate their values, it might come from this incorrect notion that science is value-free or objective or anything, you know, n- name it, right? Um, but because of that, it makes people think, well, oh, values, I shouldn't incorporate them into my practice. But in reality, all of science is you know, there's, there's values inherent into it, right? There's a value of saying P less than 0.05. There's a value in choosing one methodology over another. And, you know, we need to start really thinking about those values. And that's just coming from a methodological standpoint, but obviously values are inherent in what kind of evaluations we decide to do and who we decide to work with and how we work with them. So I just really liked these issues for these reasons. I also liked how they introduced praxis articles to really demonstrate how, you know, so that these had evaluators talking explicitly about how values were incorporated into their evaluation practice. So there's, you know, half a dozen of these praxis articles that um, I just, I got a lot out of. Um, There's, there's, um, I'm not going to go over those individually, but they were just really helpful to really see it in action. I think this, these praxis articles do something really helpful because too often I feel like articles, you know, they explain what they did, but I'm left wondering, well, how, how, how did you do that? How would I do that? Right. And I, I've, I'm writing this paper right now. This is tangential, but it's, you know, it's very tutorial-esque, right? That it's, the goal is somebody should be able to read this article and be able to implement this method in their own data easily at least that's the goal, right? We'll see how um, how well we accomplish that goal. But I wish more people would write in a way that's like, these were my thought processes of why I did this, not just we just did this, right? Like So I really appreciate these Praxis articles to really shine a light on. Ooh, I'm using that term, right? Shine a light, uh, AEA uh, 2020 conference theme on um, what this actually looks like in practice. So I really like those articles. And then I really liked this quote from Shadish, 1994. Um, so this was quoted in the editorial by um, the second editorial, I believe, by uh, so different order, right? And other people, uh, Hassel, Gullickson, a- uh, Aisha Boyce, right? Who was on a past episode and Kelly Hannum. So this is the quote. So what harm would be done if evaluators ignored values? In one sense, no harm would be done because evaluations would still have values implicit in them. Values inevitably permeate the selection of independent and dependent variables, the choice of questions and stakeholders, and the social and political context from which many evaluators arise. Evaluators cannot avoid values even if they try. But in another sense, real harm is done if evaluators deal with values naively or poorly through their implicit choices. So that's a quote from Shaddis, 1994, page 35. And I just, I think that really, you know, the fact that they put that at this, I think at the top of their editorial really highlights like, this is what they're aiming for, right? That we could ignore values, but they're there even if we ignore them. And really, if we ignore them or deal with them poorly, it's going to do real harm. So I just really like this. I think it summarized these two issues really well. So I would recommend everybody read those two special issues on values in the Evaluation Journal of Australasia. And if you want more resources, Karen Hassel, uh, who's right now one of my go-to people when I'm thinking about values and evaluation right now, um, one of the latest articles in those special issues, uh, she put out a reading guide of books and other resources for evaluators, hoping to learn more about the role of values in evaluation and how to incorporate values into your evaluation approaches. So I just really recommend those two special issues on values. So there's one more special issue. It's an NDE issue, number 166, that I really wanted to highlight. And this one, I'm going to go through article by article, because when I was reading this, I was taking notes like crazy. This was just a really... Really powerful issue, um, by all of the editors and all of the authors. So we're going to go through each of the articles and just some of the, the highlights and things that I took away from it. But I would really recommend, just like the special issue, the two special issues on values and evaluation, I'd really recommend everybody read this NDE volume. And remember, if you are an AEA member, a member of the American Evaluation Association, that you have free access to all NDE volumes. Um, so if you go into your membership, And I think on the far right um, menu, there's an opportunity to click, um, I think it says journal access, online journal access. And in there is NDE as well as the American Journal of Evaluation. So you all, if you are a member, have access to these articles. So this NDE issue is called Examining Issues Facing Communities of Color, The Role of Evaluation to Insight Change. And so that's the name of the editorial, the first one. And they talk about four guiding questions in the volume. The first is how does culture matter in evaluation theory and practice? How does attending to culture make for better evaluation? What is the value add of cultural competence in evaluation? And then how complexities, challenges, and politics of diversity issues affect evaluation. So a lot of big charges, um, but I think they do this really well. So those are the four guiding questions in this volume. And as I mentioned, um, which I think is wonderful, they have a mixture of both longtime evaluators and scholars of evaluation, as well as early career evaluators and researchers. And I think if I recall correctly, there are some graduate students as well in here. So there's a mixture of, you know, people like um, Melvin Hall and... um, Leah Neubauer and Jaredine Coffey and, and others who have, you know, been around at least for a few years, right? But then we've got some people who are much newer to the field of evaluation, which I really, I really appreciate that in this issue. So the first article is by Hall called Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And he walks us through a brief history of the field of evaluation in relation to evaluators and communities of color. He mentions that there is a general mismatch in the demographics between the evaluator community and the impacted communities that we work with, with especially a lack of diversity in the evaluation community, right? Um, I think I was just looking the 2018 member survey of AEA, it's about, if I recall correctly, about, 65, yeah, about 65% white, I believe, which doesn't quite match the demographics of the United States. Especially given the fact that impacted communities are disproportionately more likely to be um, Black, Indigenous, or people of color, we should consider how the evaluator community should match that diversity, particularly thinking about a culturally responsive lens. So Hall argues that in our quest to be scientific and objective, and, you know, if you were looking at me, I'd have little uh, scare around those words, right? But he argues that evaluation has been complicit in maintenance of the status quo. This is partly the fear of evaluators in, quote, going too far toward advocacy, advic- activism, confluence of interest, and uncertainty. However, he believes our field, quote, must develop approaches to their work steeped in reflection, communication, and power sharing, end quote. So this article, and the volume in general, is, quote, a clarion call to an evaluation community that seeks to be a productive force in decolonizing, liberating, and otherwise freeing those held in an invisible but powerful institutionalized inequality Find ways to use your inquiry tools to mine for the ties that bind. So, there's a, the title of the article at the end. So, as you can see, we're starting to get into this idea of advocacy and how that relates to evaluation practice. And the, the last article will go into that, that topic in much more detail. I just really like those quotes, and I don't want to do his words injustice, so I, I kept those words as is. The next article is by Reid Boyce, right, Aisha Boyce from a past episode, and forgive me if I pronounce this wrong, Atatogan, Mahler, and Avent, and it's called, If Not Us, Then Who? Evaluators of Color and Social Change. So they conducted a survey among a diverse group of evaluators of color, and I, I want to mention, like, emphasize that, right, that it's a diverse group of evaluators of color, um, looking at their um, racial and ethnic identity, but as well as other identities and how that affects their identity as an evaluator and the way they do evaluation. And I thought this was really interesting and not surprising, right? Like no group is a monolith, no group is completely homogenous, but that there were a lot of things sometimes even more strongly that affected their identity as an evaluator than their racial and ethnic identity, right? Their education, their evaluation training, years of experience, the sector they evaluate in and the sector that they are employed in, but also that they experienced changes in practicing evaluation due to a variety of, ge- of identities, including some of the ones I just mentioned, but also like gender, physical appearance and age. And that evaluators may define their role as, for example, catalysts and change agents, but report showing up as those roles less often, suggesting there might be a strain evaluators of color experience when inciting change, right? That they are saying they are catalysts and change agents, and that's their role as an evaluator, but they're not able to show up in those roles as often as they say they would call that their role, right? And so I just really enjoyed this article um, for encouraging us all, regardless of our racial or ethnic background, to be reflective of how our identities and how our you know, what our identities are and how they impact our roles and practice and evaluation. A bit of a side note, but Bianca Montrose Moorhead and I are working on a similar type of research. So I I just really appreciate this article for thinking about like, you know, values are inherent to our identity, right? And so identity is kind of a larger umbrella of what, you know, what makes us call ourselves an evaluator and how we practice evaluation as a result of how we identify either as an evaluator or not and within that like what are the identities of underlying the evaluator identity. So really enjoyed that article. The next article, and forgive me again if I pronounce names wrong, I think I'm just going to say that overall, forgive me if I pronounce names wrong, Um, Ganbarpur, Mercado, and Palotai. So this is called A Language Justice Framework for Culturally Responsive and Equitable Evaluation. And so this article argues that our evaluation work should be grounded in language justice, which is our right um, everybody's right to communicate in the language one feels most comfortable. And they say that denying this right is an act of oppression and, quote, evaluators who fail to create multilingual spaces in which no language is dominant or who routinely exclude on um, only English speakers contribute to these inequities, end quote. This aspect of language justice is an essential component of culturally responsive and equitable evaluation approaches. Right? It's in our AEA statement on cultural competence to really think critically about language. But I think they're like really filling a large gap in the field by addressing this important topic explicitly, rather than kind of. um, This makes me think back to you know past research and past evaluation work and how you know the default was like okay we've got such a you know a minor population that speaks. Spanish, for instance, um, you know, we just won't collect data from them. But that's that's not allowing them to participate in the evaluation, right? That's actively taking them out of the evaluation. So this is really showing the emphasis of how we need to be careful in the language we use and who we include in our evaluation work. But also, and they mentioned this, um, to really think critically about what language we use, right? Just because we have a Spanish-speaking population, for example, doesn't mean they all speak Spanish the same way. I think it's uh, Isaac Castillo forgive me if I get this example wrong, I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it, um, had an example of how, um, I think he was talking about this in terms of like evaluation failures, right? You know, he's, an, he's a Spanish speaker, but he was in a new um, context and he was using a word that um, in his context means, uh, you know, it's, it's sweetbread, But in another context, it's a, <laughs> a female genitalia, right? And so y- you have to be very Understanding of how language is going to change from context to context and what those connotations might mean for a particular word. Right, it's still both Spanish, but uh, very different connotations of what that means in different in different uh, contexts. The next article is by Dolly Casey Seves niguez and Jardine Coffee on radical inquiry, a liberatory practice for research and evaluation. And so they ask us to think. About how we can move from compliance to liberation in our practice, right? Thinking about um, how we can switch our thinking from you know med- you know compliance and accountability to really this you know radical inquiry of liberation, um, particularly when especially like the program itself is is focused on this radical inquiry and liberation. They couch this in the context of the long history of them evaluating this youth program and how it led to employing radical inquiry in the, it sounds like the program as well as the evaluation itself. So at the basis of this radical inquiry that they talk about are four praxis, which define, which they define and then show how the organization and evaluation exemplified these praxis. And so these praxis praxis are Radical inquiry is grounded in relationship and healing. It employs multimodal platforms of expression and sharing of our personal and collective realities. It focuses on transforming systems and it actively challenges and disrupts the dominant dehumanizing frameworks of social science research. And so just like one of the er earlier articles, uh, those praxis articles, this one does a really good job of walking through the underlying rationale for the changes that were made and what changes were made and how. And it's just a really good, like if if there were an organization that were interested in really revolutionizing the way that they think about evaluation, like this is a really great resource to think about how to do that. Next is Guajardo, Robles Schrader, Aponte Soto, and Neubauer. Latcrit Theory as a Framework for Social Justice Evaluation, Considerations for Evaluation and Evaluators. So this article introduces Latino critical race theory to the evaluation community, Latcrit, as a, quote, transformative evaluation paradigm for conducting evaluation within and in service of Latinx communities, end quote. So Latcrit theory, um, quote, considers the ways in which Latinx experience systems of power and oppression through complex racial and cultural identities, both visible and invisible, which are uniquely different from Anglo or Black counterparts, end quote. I saw a lot of parallels with the uh, earlier language justice framework, right? Um, Thinking not only about racial identity, but also the cultural identity that provides that heterogeneity within Groups right, and so they suggest a lot of considerations of latCrit uh, theory to evaluation. So that first, evaluation should understand Latinx experience through a historical lens and attend to their ethno racial identity, language, culture, valu- uh, voices, sorry, and communities. Second, evaluators should have the ability to apply knowledge and, and understanding about Latinx communities to advance transformation and incite change. Third, evaluators should be committed to expanding and connecting diverse Latinx experiences. And fourth, there should be a cultivation of affinity and cooperation among a community of evaluators focused on transformation and the elimination of oppression and marginalization of Latinx people. So they talk a little bit about some four values that have been prominent in their evaluation work that comes up in working with Latinx communities, things like familismo or the importance of family, respeto or respect, simpatia or kindness and friendliness, and the marianismo or machismo dichotomy or generals uh, and expectations. And I just really like this um, as a – and going back to those considerations of Lack-Crick theory to evaluation, um, I think broadly thinking just kind of critical theory in general, critical race theory – Those could be applied to a lot of different contexts, right? We should understand our participants' experiences through historical lenses and their ethno-racial identities, regardless of who they are, right? That we should be applying our knowledge and understanding of the community to advance transformation and incite change. That we should be committed to expanding and connecting diverse experiences within communities, and so on, right? Like we could kind of take out the word Latinx and I think it would apply to a lot of other contexts and a lot of other communities that we would work with. So I just really liked it, um, how they talked about how they engage with Latinx communities and how they recognize the values that are inherent in those communities, but also the diversity of experiences and backgrounds that influence those values and those experiences and then therefore our evaluation work. So the next article is by Moss and Crew. It's called The Black Perspective, A Framework for Culturally Competent Health-Related Evaluations for African-Americans. So they provide and present the Black Perspective Health Evaluation Framework as a cultural lens for conducting culturally competent evaluations that address health disparities faced by African-Americans. So it talks about some of the health disparities um, at the beginning of the article, and then it integrates the six perspectives of the Black Perspective which they call, you know, which is a framework, philosophy, and model that was crafted in the 60s and 70s. So these six pr- principles include affirmation, strengths, vivification, diversity, internationalization, and social justice, which they then take those and show how they apply to the AEA guiding principles and the CDC guide for culturally competent evaluation. And so they provide a checklist at the end that's again it's it's for health related evaluations but i think this could be broadened out and used in a variety of other contexts so it asks to what extent these principles these six principles of the black perspective are applied to various evaluation activities like so you it's a it's a they they call it a checklist it seems more like a rating rubric to see how well you are incorporating the black perspective within the evaluation that you're conducting So the next article is by Lemos and Garcia, Promoting Culturally Responsive and Equitable Evaluation with Latinx Immigrants. And so this article discusses some of the factors evaluators should take note of when working with immigrant populations. So, for example, just like the language justice article, they recommend evaluation tools are translated into uh, Spanish that you use simple Spanish terms and that you pilot test to ensure that the tools are understandable across a uh, a variety of diverse Latinx communities, but also um, like specific recommendations about immigrant, right? Like. If you're going to ask for immigrant status, make sure that you're in, in, you know storing the data in a de-identified manner because that is protected health information and can be subpoenaed. So you know, be careful if you're going to ask for immigrant status, but if you are, you need to like, be really careful about how you store your data. Rather, they recommend using proxy indicators of immigration status and they provide a list of them. So like if you do feel like you have to know that type of information, think about other types of information that could help you know, like, you know, get a better sense if they are a neighbor without explicitly asking and therefore having that data on them. They also, and I love this, they talk about factors to consider across the various levels of Bronfenbrenner's bioecological systems model. I love Bronfenbrenner's model, thinking in an ecological frame point of the the micro, the meso and the macro level across time and so on. And so then they end by discussing what evaluators should do to carry out an activist role, right? We're going back to that idea of what is the role of evaluators on all of this, in working with Latinx immigrants. Although, again, I think what they talk about and those opportunities for acting as an activist could likely be expanded to other populations. So this next article is by Nicole Bowman, Nation to Nation in Evaluation, Utilizing an Indigenous Evaluation Model to Frame Systems and Government Evaluations. So she addresses how culturally responsive approaches to evaluation should be applied when working with sovereign tribal or first nation governments. And so uh, builds on previous literature um, on tribal critical systems theory, which she first published in the Canadian Journal of Program Evaluation in 2019, and tribal critical systems theory itself builds on tribal critical theory. Right. But adding in this systems theory perspective into tribal critical theory, tribal critical systems theory, as she provides, has nine tenets which frame the nation to nation model between the tribal, federal and state governments, as well as the United Nations declarations on the rights of indigenous people. Of particular note to evaluators is that Nikki Koboman argues that this nation-to-nation model should be incorporated into AEA's Evaluation Policy Task Force and the Roadmap for an Effective Government. And the end of the article provides a really useful table on applying critical systems heuristics to indigenous systems evaluation. This next article is by McBride, Casilla, and Lo Piccolo, Inciting Social Change Through Evaluation. So this article argues that all evaluators have a role and responsibility to explicitly address structural racism in our evaluation projects, right? We have a role and responsibility. Our evaluation skill set, our connections with organizations, and our evaluative purpose for aiding decision makers make us us suitable and perhaps responsible, as they argue, for pursuing structural equity. And so I've got two quotes uh, that I want to read from the article, and I will say, like, I, w- I was tempted to just pull a lot of quotes from this article. It was just, like, a lot of, like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, head nodding as I'm reading along. So here's two quotes, um, but this one I really enjoyed. Same with the next one that I'll read. But so they say, quote, to reach a goal towards supporting the common good as evaluators, we must be more than well-intentioned. We must adopt, engender, and support an oppositional consciousness. We must be knowledgeable about and committed to examining and confronting these barriers to human and societal progress. And the next quote, evaluators not only have a role but a responsibility to deconstruct and then construct an ideal toward micro-level decision-making and macro-level policy transformation. Evaluators work on both levels and in between. Thus, the role and tactics that evaluators can apply towards structural equity can start exactly where we are. We can support a variety of actions that can help institutions internalize their role in remediate, uh, remedying sorry, inequity. At a minimum, we can and should urge equitable decision-making, build data systems that provide evidence of disparities, guide the decision and implementation of programs in a way that addresses social ills, and help institutions ask questions regarding their own role in supporting inequitable structures. And then the last article by New Baron Hall is inciting social change, something evaluators can do, should do. And so they summarize the previous articles which they you know say have so far explicitly or implicitly argued that evaluators can incite social change. However, they disagree that all evaluators should or that it should be done in all evaluations. Under an oppositional consciousness framework, quote, our work must link with a social movement that challenges evaluation and evaluators to contribute to a more just, equitable society, end quote. But not all evaluators are going to be equipped or ready to do this type of work. And so if you are in a position and ready to do and incite that social change, they provide a lot of insights into a critical action orientation to evaluation Again, arguing that only those willing to embrace this activist role should take it on because authenticity is key. So in the last part of this podcast, I'm going to go through a few articles. So three articles, one state of the field series of articles, and then one white paper. So first is an earlier 2020 paper by Sebastian Lemire and colleagues on the growth of the evaluation tree in the policy analyst forest. Uh, Sorry, Policy Analysis Forest in, I think, the Journal of Policy Studies, but it'll be linked in the show notes. One thing I really liked about this is that it starts to move us away from thinking about theorists on the theory tree, but rather theories on the theory tree. And they identify major trends across the three branches, which I think we should start thinking about broader Themes within the branches, and I'll, I'll talk about the tree in a second, but geez, they're identifying trends about what we're seeing in these three branches, right? For methods, trends of big data analytics, understanding how and why programs work, right? Uh, theory driven and realist evaluation type work. And then third, complexity theory and systems theory, uh, sy- systems thinking. In the use branch, they identified two trends uh, evaluation capacity building, as well as collaborative and participatory approaches. And then in the values branch, cultural awareness and cultural competence. But you'll notice, you know, we're not adding in the fourth branch from Ernst and Wilson of uh, transformation, social justice, but also there's been a lot of talk on Twitter about whether... The evaluation tree should be a tree at all. I, you know, been hearing a lot about you know the the cultural connotations of what a tree means, or actually, really, what a tree is, right? And how it is within a larger system. How a tree probably does not do our history justice, and maybe justice is not the right word there, but how we should really be thinking critically about the the metaphors that we use. So. I will just say that there's a group of people, Bianca Montrose-Moorhead and others who are, forgive me, I don't have all your names right in front of me right now. I think I think Lisa Becher. So I'm really excited about some other work by people on evaluation theory, particularly the work that Bianca Montrose-Moorhead, Daniela Schroeder, and Lisa Lysa, I'm sorry, Wilson Becho, um, are doing on, quite frankly, abandoning the tree, which I'm Kind of excited about, well, really excited about, and how they're reconceptualizing how to categorize evaluation theories. Right, so we kind of have two major frameworks for categorizing theories. We've got the the tree, which I think is the most popular. Got the Shadish Cook and Levitin five domain framework of evaluation theory, and they you know track how it changes across three three eras basically, which is how we get into the fourth generation evaluation with Guba and Lincoln. But I'm just, I'm really excited to see what comes of it because rather than thinking about three domains, uh, it sounds like they're thinking a bit more of what are some of the underlying things and concepts across theories that we can kind of, I don't want to say measure, that's not the right word, but we can see where they align on these measures. So for instance, you know, we could track how participatory does it work with stakeholders in general, right? And so like a collaborative approach will be just a little participatory, participatory will be a little bit more participatory, empowerment and action research be very participatory, right? So we can now track it on this continuum of whether it's no not participatory at all to extremely participatory to the fact that evaluation is just acting as like consultant to the program. So I'm excited for that to really see where evaluation theory is going from here. So the next article is from the American Journal of Evaluation, Herto et al. the role of intuition and evaluative judgment and decision. So they conducted interviews with eight novice evaluators and eight experienced evaluators to see how intuitive decision making Comes about, um, like what is their quality of intuitive decision making and what, like how does knowledge and domain specific experience affect their intuition? So they found that uh, intuition is developed by a means of long, complex, and demanding processes and that it requires expertise and professional experience to develop. So they didn't find this intuition as commonly in the novice evaluators as they did the experienced evaluators. And it seems that situational awareness and reflective practice seem to really be key to the role of intuition as a particularly a way to test whether our intuitions are correct, right? So we, you know, have a hypothesis, an intuition hypothesis, we see it play in action, and then we kind of reflect in and on action of did it work, right? Was our intuition correct? And then it changes how we uh, use our intuition in the future, right? And that over time, our expertise will lead to better intuitions. And this makes me think about uh, Sarah Mason's dissertation, which she recently published, and I believe it's in evaluation and program planning on the special issue on teaching evaluation, and so her dissertation looked at situational awareness and it seems that like case studies seem to really be a great resource to help novice evaluators begin to develop those quote memory banks of past experiences to help inform intuition. So we can kind of I don't want to say we can fast track intuition with these case studies and and you know developing situational awareness, but I think it does help especially really novice evaluators to get there, like get there a little quicker and start trusting their intuition just a little quicker, or at least being able to understand what's going on in the moment. I thought it was interesting there's a strange limitation at the end that some people may not have they had a hard time, it sounds like getting participants in the study. Apparently they would review the questionnaire, which I thought it was strange because I thought this was an interview, but anyways, um, it would review the questionnaire and then not participate. And so they, they ask like, is it because they don't use intuition and therefore don't want to participate in this interview? Is it because they're uncomfortable admitting to using intuition or maybe not using intuition? Like they're uncomfortable with that aspect of thinking about intuition. So the authors lead conclude saying like intuition may not be suitable for every evaluator, But my thought is based on like research on cognitive psychology, on heuristics and stuff like that, is that we probably use our intuition more than we care to admit. Um, So I thought this was really interesting to start thinking about our intuition and how we use it and how it relates to reflective practice and so on. The next article is by Brown and DeLalo, Talking Circles, a Culturally Responsive Evaluation Practice. This is also in the American Journal of Evaluation. So they present talking circles as a method that evaluators can use to build and nurture relationships, establish norms and values, and help people connect on a multitude of levels with others in the circle. So this is an Indigenous method that the First Nations in Canada began teaching to non-Native people in the past. It has primarily been used in Indigenous evaluation, but they authors suggest it could and perhaps should be used more often in evaluation work particularly evaluation work using critical culturally responsive developmental empowerment and participatory evaluation approaches they're cautious in stating that one cannot just take up circle practice and claim cultural competence right the circle itself does not magically erase bias prejudice and racism it does rather it really requires a critically self-aware and humble circle keeper so I've been learning more about circle as a facilitation method. Libby Smith has been finding some resources and helping me craft a little bit my my facil- facilitation skills and some of the practices within the talking circle that can be used as a, facil- uh, you know, for facilitation purposes. And I've just been increasingly intrigued at the process. I will say that knowing a bit more now about the background, that it is an Indigenous method, I would say that there's perhaps some prudence and caution and humility that should be approached in determining whether to use such a practice for instance you know i am a white colon- colonialist settler and so you know like to what extent sh- should i be using a talking circle but they end the authors end with some strategies for you know people like me and other non-indigenous evaluators who might be interested in, co- in incorporating circles into their evaluation practice i worry a little bit about cultural appropriation if you know again if there's not enough great care and thought heated when making those decisions. But I think it's a really interesting method for facilitation and for evaluation practice that this article lays it out pretty nicely, but there's also a lot of other resources on the circle method out there if you're interested. Next, if you listen to Zach Tilton on one of the earlier episodes, uh, you'll remember that he was working on a Merle Tech State of the Field series of articles, and that series of articles has now come out. And so First, MERL is is an acronym, Monitoring, Evaluation, Research, and Learning Technology, right? So M-E-R-L, Monitoring, Evaluation, Research, and Learning. So it's the technology within those four components. And so there's four articles, uh, State of the Field. So the first one talks about the history and background of MERL Tech. Uh, how information and communication technologies can be used in all stages of planning, monitoring, and evaluation to improve the quality of data, the variety of data sources, can save us time and money, improve accountability, etc. And so the first paper identifies three trends in rural tech over the past five years. So first, that it's primarily, it was first used to support traditional monitoring, evaluation, research, and learning, right? So it's just kind of like a Okay, you're doing something. How can technology kind of just support what you're currently doing? The second wave has focused on big data and data science. And the third wave is focused on emerging approaches to moral tech. So that's the first paper, just kind of background paper. The second paper is a scoping review by a number of people at Western Michigan, including Zach Tilton, as well as independent consultants and people from the University of Notre Dame. The paper answers questions about how moral tech has helped evaluators in practice. So things like GIS, quantitative data analysis software, mobile phone technologies, management information systems, and online surveys were the most commonly reported technologies in moral tech and moral tech seems to be most often reported in data analysis, implementation, and monitoring, and data collection. So getting a sense of like where moral tech is being used and what moral tech is being used in evaluation, well, moral, I should say, right, in monitoring, evaluation, research, and learning. The third set. Paper. I, I will. I will just say I did not review these papers in full depth. But the first, the third paper is focused on big data and data science. That second wave of Merle Tech, and the fourth paper starts to talk about emerging technologies and approaches in Merle for international development programs. So, for really, really well crafted. Um, I will say the design on these are just gorgeous. I'm kind of curious who created them and you know like what program and stuff. But really gorgeous papers. But also like really helpful to think about like what technology is being used in evaluation and other spaces. So the last article I want to go over is a white paper by Engage R&D. This is called Listening for Change. Evaluators of Color Speak Out About Experiences with Foundations and Evaluation Firms. So this white paper focuses on how we need to better listen in to the experiences and ideas of professionals of color working in evaluation or foundations so that we can make progress on our missions of equity in evaluation and philanthropy. And so they identified four themes in relation to the importance of attending to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'm going to go over those four themes, but really recommend everybody read this entire, this entire white paper. So the first theme is that outreach is key to opening a career pathway. For example, there's a lack of formal career pathways and points of entry into evaluation. We can do better in our recruitment, hiring, training, retention, and further building of our field to attract, retain, and promote more evaluators of color. Second, attitudes and dynamics in the workplace affect retention of evaluators of color. Foundations and evaluation firms must be careful in not always placing DEI work, diversity, equity, and inclusion work, on people of color, and to adapt their organization culture. Rather than expecting staff of color to conform to the dominant culture that already is existing there, right? We need to adapt, not expect staff of color to be the ones to adapt. Third, foundations and evaluation firms committed to DEI must do more than just hiring people of color, which they, you know, which is called tokenism. Some signals of an actual commitment to DEI include having e- equity-centered initiatives and practices diversity of people across levels of the organization, and organizational self-awareness and self-reflection on race, power, and privilege. And fourth, and this seems to summarize all the previous points, is that employers must take on an active role in retaining staff. This can include training and mentorship and opening up conversations about equity-related issues within the organization and just overall creating a safe space, but it's, it's an active part that the organization needs to take. So overall, this, this report highlights the need for organizations to take ownership of their DEI commitments rather than what often occurs, which is blaming staff of color for not fitting in to the organization or hiring for tokenism uh, reasons. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this research roundup. If you have any thoughts, comments, questions, I'd love to hear them. If you have articles that you want to share, if you want to record yourself talking about an article and include it in a future episode, feel free to email me send me recordings. Um, I'd love to include you on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evalueland.fireside.fm, where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evalualand.